Welcome to the Dev Ready Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we're joined by Mostyn Howe. Mostyn is from Ubi Park. Mostyn, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, really appreciate you coming in and just sharing your journey thus far. So, Mostyn, let's dig in a little bit about you. Tell us a bit about your background and your, your history within business, life, and career. So yeah, home was Creswick, you know, a small country town in country Victoria. Nice. And I was lucky enough to move to Melbourne very early days. Um, thought I was going to be a keen golf. I was a keen golfer and I thought I was going to be a golf pro. So I, I was an apprentice greenkeeper as my first role outside outside school. Worked okay. out that that worked out that was definitely not for me. And I was definitely not good enough to play golf for a living. I would have starved. Uh, but always <laughs> had always had an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, even at school, I was the one setting up sweeps and running Melbourne Cup uh, books and, and and coming up with all sort of hair, hairbrain ideas back then. And uh, then I got into parking. I, I come back to Melbourne uh, when I was around 30 and got into car parking as a, a necessity. I, I worked in a number of jobs. I sold mobile phones. I know I worked in, in bars and hospitality. And to make ends meet, I also worked in car parks for Wilson Parking. So I started at the the, the bottom run. I was stamping early birds in the you know in the two to three degrees rain and hail on on top of um, car parks in in Melbourne, double parking cars. And doesn't sound and, very exciting, does it? No, no, not now. <laughs> yeah. and, and thankfully, that technology has come around, and and there's not a lot of people doing those sort of things anymore. But but yeah, I, I mean, my first day on the job yeah, for Wilson. True was at Golden Square. I'll never forget it, actually. It was Golden Square Car Park. I was a, a, a kid from the, the country that didn't know too much about things uh, in the city. And uh, when we went through, um, I was getting trained how to open the car park and, and set up for the day and get ready to, to, to sort of get the cars parked. And in those days, used to double park a lot of cars. Now, we got everything set up. And, and the last thing the uh, the manager of the car park got me to, to do is he, he, he rolled me around to, to the back of the car park where the stairwells were. And... He started unwinding the the fire hose, and I was, I was sort of going, "What the okay. hell's going on? What the hell's going on here?" And he he uh, said, "Right, young fella, once you uh, once I say now, you turn that hose on as as quickly as you can." And he booted open the the stairwell door, and and I turned he goes now and turned the hose on really quickly, and and there it was, obviously the homeless and and the drug addicts in the stairwells that he used to have to clean out every morning. So it was uh, an interesting um, oh, start uh, to my life. In that, I sort yeah, of worked pretty through... eye-opening when you see that. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, I worked through with Wilson. I worked through a career there over ten years. So I, I sort of started doing you know the normal car park uh-huh. attendant roles, and I got uh, into the marketing and sales team, and I, I did a lot of administration around monthly parking, car management, learned the business. It was a good way to learn the business that way. And then I got into they got me back into operations, and I was running a suite of car parks in Melbourne for, for Wilson Parking. And that grew into a role in New Zealand where I was the um, North Island business operations manager running uh, the entire operation for Wilson Parking in New Zealand. And then come back and got into the technology and found I was probably no good in operations. And I had a, a real passion around technology. The operations background gave me a really good understanding of what would work. And it wasn't just selling technology for technology. It was was solving problems and using that technology to, to solve the real problems. Um, and I, you know, I had a good career uh, selling technology, you know, Boomgate and parking guidance technology for both Wilson and, and a company called TMA Tech, which was my last role before Ruby Park. I was a sales director there. And probably the best part of that job is I was tasked with finding technology from around the world to bring back into Australia. And New Zealand and the mm-hmm. Philippines was our, our three main markets. And that's where I started to to sort of you know, find things, and I started to see this mobility space opening up. Obviously, mobile phones, and I saw some technology that allowed the smartphone to open a barrier. And when I talked to my boss at the time, he said, "No, we won't be doing those things for mobile phones. That that's never going to happen." I said to him, "It's yeah, probably time." Okay, interesting. You can see the future of it. <laughs> no, I thought it was time then to you know, I was, uh, I've always wanted to do something myself, and always wanted to have a crack at my own business, and and I thought this is the opportunity to do it. So, so that's when uh, Ubi Park was born, and we kicked off, and we pretty much got everything wrong. And as I've heard in some of your your, your past podcasts, I've got a horror story to tell around the non-technical founder that 
that thought he knew more about tech than he did. And I sort of come out, you know, I think <laughs> come out of uh, that corporate world where I had a lot of support and a lot of, you know, a lot of good people around me that, that sort of help you sort of navigate through and get things sort of developed and, and into the market. But I sort of come out with that mindset that I wanted the bells and whistles. I needed that that app. It was my reputation. I needed the best app in the parking industry. And you obviously you don't build apps like that. Um, but that was that was what my head was around that. And and we made a lot of mistakes early days. Got caught up with the wrong people. Listened to the wrong people. <laughs> at a terrible time early early days. It sounds like you got a vast level of experience clearly in the space. So um, your operations, sales, marketing. You've covered all facets of what parking really is. A bit of training. Yeah, quite a bit of training to move into this business. But, but I think well, you raise an interesting point because anyone in a, as a domain expert, as I would call you, in the space, you've been working in the industry, you've worked for a number of roles, understand what key problems might be and how technology could help. Yeah, I think you touched upon something interesting where you've also always had the support around you of a team that can deliver and you come back to yourself or maybe one or two people when you start out and it's like yeah, the, the likelihood of getting that perfect bells and whistles app to market, neither, yes, you wouldn't build it that way to begin with. We start small, iterate. But yeah, that probably is probably from the step back of all the support you had but working in corporate because you can do that and they throw the budgets at things when necessary, right? Yeah, I think that's that's it. You do you do a lot of things, you get a lot of guidance, and you get a lot of support, and, and you've got to do everything yourself. And, and obviously, you start to try and put people around you that can help you. I think that was probably my challenge was trying to find the right people to come around that you could. And I sort of explain it when I'm at a barbecue that uh, it's like taking your car to a mechanic and saying, yeah, they get a service and they ring you up and they say, oh, you need new brakes or you need this or you need that, and you sort of trust them and you say yes. And and that's what happened for me through the early iteration of our technology was we had people around that probably weren't on the same page as us, didn't have the same goals, have had different agendas. And to be quite honest, probably weren't great, great people. And we we trust them. I'm a trusting sort of person. And we went down that track and we spent a lot of money. You know, the the first sort of the first sort of release of the app and and the and the console technology that we've we we started with was was around three hundred grand. And, and when I went to the next, when we sort of separated away Big from the next guys, yeah. we went to the next guy. He said, yeah, you've got something that's worth 30 grand. And you're just sort of devastated, you know, mm. and, that, and pretty much everyone, we sort of did three iterations of this. We, uh, before we sort of, I sort of got some real good knowledge around, but the, the CTO of the business, Will Vandekamp now is is someone I've known for 30, 30 years. And Will's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. totally on the same page as us. It's someone I trust with, you know, with my life and it's the first time when he came on in 2016 uh, he was it was the first time I felt like we had we had control of it and I had someone had our back but yeah we went every time I took it to a new um, a new technology uh, company developer they pretty much told me I had to start again and and I just said to him I, I said can we write it in English because I'm, I'm sick of someone telling me that um, they've written it in the wrong language and uh, it's in a language that no one else uses. So that was sort of the, the terrible times. But, you know, since then, Will's you know, really straightened us around the technology. It's all built on the, the Microsoft stack, you know, .NET, and we use Xamarin for our, for our app platform, Xamarin Forms. And it's, it, it's now starting to really, you know, prosper as a technology platform. And we're sort of in that sort of spate now of, of running through customer experience and user experience sort of and taking it to the next level. Mm-hmm. So stepping back into that experience that isn't ideal for anybody, like what would you say sort of were you on your own trying to design and work with the team or how did you approach the initial iterations of the product? Or how, how did you probably approach picking the team to help <laughs> to find the partner that you were expecting there to be a partner? Yeah, we had an original co-founder and then we found an advisory company and that advisory company come sort of sort of pitched to us around. They had a a, you know, a CEO type of role, a, a CFO sort of skill set, and a CTO sort of skill set. And and they the way they pitched the business to what actually happened was two different things. But the way the pitch of the business and why we actually went down there was they could give us that sort of sales CEO sort of open the networks, raise money. There was that that sort of promise. Mm-hmm. The CFO would straighten us up around the finance and, and, and the pricing and, and how to commercialize the, the, 
product. And then the CTO could pull all the technology together. And then you could pull in resources from their company like marketing and, and things like that at, at an hourly rate rather than putting them on full time or, or, or using sort of contractors to do that. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was really appealing. And, and we went down that. And we committed to that project. I ended up raising the 350 grand and 300 it went to them. And we got a, a $30,000. Okay. So you raised it on your own accord. I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been really lucky, and, and those early yeah, shareholders okay. with us are still with us uh-huh. and, and real supportive, and uh, they helped me through not just uh, funding that initial phase, but they helped me fund getting out of that as well, which has been amazing for them. Okay. And the model sounds sounds spectacular, and especially as a startup founder, having everything there to work with. What do you think went wrong? What, what were no. some of the things that weren't quite right from your perspective? So what could have been done does, better? It does sound like it's the ideal... Yeah, it does. It's an interesting model. I'm just trying to learn a bit more about resources yeah, to help you. Yeah. I, I think for me, I was a little bit naive, right? So mm. and committed and trusted and I didn't do enough due diligence around that sort of stuff. So okay. So I think that's probably the first thing. And then, you know, and as I said to you guys, I probably, you know, we're now committed to a, a full agile development, you know, with mm-hmm. two-week sprints and, and outcomes out of that where I couldn't get my head around that early days and, and, and even – you know, through mm-hmm. through the two or three early development companies that went through our journey, they were sort of pitching some of that sort of stuff, but I couldn't get my head around it. You know, coming from that traditional corporate world where it's all waterfall, pretty much, you get a quote and a scope and, and you know, you, you get a price and, you know, can you go and build it to that price? But that was probably the biggest learning for me and, and what now I understand is the right way to build out the technology, um, but it took me a while to get my head around that. And that, that was probably the biggest learning learning out of that. So from a difference with Waterfall to Agile, explain that to listeners. What's been the experience for you going through? Obviously, yeah, we walk out of corporate. I think in corporate world, everyone wants a budget. They've got timeframes in mind. They've got costs in mind. They need to allocate budgets to things. So it generally ends up still in the corporate mindset of going to get a quote, scoping this thing out. How do you find the difference working in an Agile environment? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I think because we're still in some old school thinking uh, with our customers, we've got to do a little bit of both. And and that's probably, you know, we're still going to have maybe scoping out our entire project, but then sp- we split it up into our sprints and, and sort of start donking off pieces of that project. But, you know, for me, it allows us that, that flexibility. You know, you know, some of these larger projects that our customers are asking us for, by the time you sort of build it out and get it to market, it's probably not exactly what they need after that. So the agile environment allows you to sort of, you know, sort of pivot and, and be sort of flexible through through the build process so that you can actually get something to market that's actually going to be useful at the time it gets there. I think that's an important point you raised there. You mentioned you scope out. Do you scope out a roadmap? Is that how you manage it internally? How do you? Uh, so we've been sort of developing off the back of sales, which is now just moving. So as a, a young company, I think yes. it's a good good way to do it. So uh-huh. so we'd go out and we'd sell it. You know, we'd prove obviously the customer that we we had had the capability to do it. And then we would deliver specifically to that mm-hmm. customer. But as you obviously scale and get bigger, you can't keep doing that. So we're now moving. We're in the midst of doing that mm-hmm. right now. We're, we're moving to where we're actually building our products based on a uh, feedback from our customers and feedback internally from the team, mm-hmm. scoping that out and then building that into the roadmap and, and developing out you know, the, the, the module that's, that's sort of going into the product. Yeah, selling off sales is always interesting. So <laughs> I think we're probably in a similar position. We've got a startup business, which is startup five years, it's been operating. So core businesses area, but Shopfront is a product that we run in the pharmacy space. And they're similar. We've been building the product of sales. So we'd have one customer, build some requirements for them, meet their needs, sell another customer in, but then sell on the scope of, as a part of delivery, we'll deliver this, this and this to move you forward in terms of your direction. I think it gives you the ability to work with customers and get to know them, but there comes a point where you really need to take control of the roadmap and the vision of the business because you can get a little bit off track doing that too. That's something I've noticed doing it that way with feedback from other people that, yes, we need to sell off sales maybe in the early days unless we go and pull in a million dollars of uh, funding. Um, it's, it's probably a model that most people will venture down and you need to be agile to it. So definitely in an agile mindset would help you through that process. Yeah, it definitely helped us survive. And I don't think we would have survived mm-hmm. if we tried to build a product and then went out to sell it and, mm-hmm. and commercialize it that way. It's so, you know, and, and there's a couple of people in our team that struggle with it because we, we've been developing 
for the next customer's requirements and the next customers. Now we've started to say, well, no, it's, let's get the best product and develop that, that best product and then start to sell the product as, as a, a product that doesn't need development for each, for each uh, customer. And that's the, the space we're now, but by able to, you know, we've, we've done some, some sales with Porsche over the last uh, few months and we've delivered a solution for them and we're building out a CarPlay application, which will be pretty close to Percy World. We're not quite sure else is around developing it. We've got it working at the moment. We really, we know it's really cutting edge because Apple have just released the the CarPlay entitlement for parking in iOS 14. Okay. So, so it's really new. We've been working on it a long time. We've been pushing for this entitlement. So we'd already done a fair bit of work and we were fairly advanced, but it allowed the Porsche motorists to to search, navigate, access, and pay for parking directly from the dash in-car screen, you know, windows completely up and everything being controlled by the by the car. So it'll be a lot safer. It'll be great customer experience for the Porsche motorist. And then we tie our commercial model in it where they'll get um, a benefit or a cost of, you know, discount parking with our parking uh, location partners. So, so, but that's been done, you know, in, a, in an agile environment, but obviously with a, uh, a goal and a set outcome that needed to be delivered out of it. I think yeah, like outcomes cool important. It is a good feature. Outcome to guide where you're always heading is yeah. necessary if you're doing anything agile. Otherwise, you're just wandering around in circles every sprint, not knowing where you're actually heading, like what the outcome's meant to be from each outcome, from each sprint to sprint. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point because we didn't know all the restrictions that Apple would put on us from a design and, and a user experience. There's obviously a lot of different you know, guidelines around how CarPlay needs to happen. So we had to be very agile and, and our customer had to be very agile around that as we were building it out. And it's been, you know, Porsche have been a great customer to actually do this with because they've been really understanding and, and worked through it with us, which has been really, really great. It's especially when it's necessary to be flexible, especially when you're reliant on a third party like that, that's dictating everything of how you're actually going to implement things. And can change on any day, especially when they have one of those big announcements. Yeah, I mean, it happens you, all the time with them. You guys probably know it better than I do, but you know, yeah, you know, things can change pretty quickly in a, in the next update or some type of restriction. So it's uh, it's always a moving beast. Question I'll ask around um, working with customers to design products. I think you mentioned that at the start where you said you you maybe couldn't have built the product and pushed it to market, but. What has it taught you around the customer's needs, actual requirements mm. while working with them during the sales, selling, working with them to refine products? What has that actually taught you? Oh, that, that's a really good point too. And you know, I've got a lot of experience in parking, but if I built out the app that I wanted, I would have had a great app for a white male that's 49. <laughs> um, and that would have been pretty much our market, I think. So, I mean, listening to the customer is the number one thing and getting an understanding, but also you know, we've got obviously the B2B customer, but then we've got the end user maybe being a customer outside that. So making sure they're involved in, in the process in some way. And focus groupings become a really big part of how we how we sort of de- design and, and build out the product uh, so the customer work, you know, make sure it works for them and they're actually going to use it. That's been probably the biggest learning for me is, is don't go and build what you think's right. Make sure you you get that information and educate yourself around what, what the actual customer is going to use. Have you found any differentiation between what they say they want to what they actually need? Yeah, some people don't know what they want and they just sort of know they want to show any app that does a, a heap of stuff. Um, and and that's probably the, the, the biggest thing of trying to, you know, our team's become very good at trying to, you know, find out what actually is the actual goal and, so, so asking people what they want and maybe asking people what the outcome is they want is, is, is probably been where we've gone. And, and then we sort of work back from what they're trying to achieve and, and then sort of work back from there on how we're going to get to there. Yeah, it's a good approach because yeah, a lot of times what someone says they want is not what they actually need when you try and find what the real problem is. Not the actual <laughs> problem. Yeah, correct. So I was just going to say, I was one of those, I was one of those customers. So I thought I knew what I needed and not what I wanted. But again, I wouldn't have got the product. We didn't get the product right when we started. And, you know, we're still obviously improving the product now because feedback changes and things like COVID-19 hits and, and people are thinking things completely differently than what they were six months ago. Yeah. And no one ever gets it right first time out of the gate. It's, it's a learning experience. It's not meant to be getting right. 
the first time I have a lot of moving parts. Yeah. One detail that's misinterpreted can totally change everything. Yeah, and I think for someone that's a non-technical founder like myself, that's probably how it should be explained. The commercial side of actually building out something and spending a lot of money on something that maybe people won't use, you can bring it back to the MVP and, and create something that you can get out and test and, and get feedback and then improve on and improve on and improve on from there. You're going to save a lot of money. So commercially, that makes sense to me. But when I was sort of talking about it earlier, it wasn't sort of explained that way to me. It's just... You know, let's start sort of small and, and build it up. So on yeah. that note, one thing, uh, when you think about product development, it's you're innovating. You're developing something new, innovative. I think you need to take it as an innovation journey, not just build something and then put it out there to market. So I think when we're creating new products, especially if you're doing something that's slightly different to the market or doing completely different to the market. So you don't have all the answers. And I think as founders or as part of a, a core startup group, I think we need to be pretty humble to say, yes, we, sh- we don't have all the answers, but if you're willing to adjust, evolve and learn from your experiences, I think it's much faster to get to and taking that mindset into a development makes it a lot easier to run when you run into those hurdles, which is customer doesn't like this model. Okay, why is that? What is the challenges that we have? What do the users really need? Setting up focus groups can really change the mindset of how you approach it because there's there's no right or wrong answer to the way you build and design products. There never is. You can do design a product with your customer set and it could be perfect, meet their needs, and then a new product does it in a completely different way, which is more efficient, can take the market. So it just depends on how you think about it, really. Yeah, I think the, the, the other thing to add to that is mm. if I let the technical team build out what they wanted, they build an amazing product that I probably couldn't sell or make any yeah. money out of. So it's it's got to be a mix and you've got to you got to run it through and, and make sure that you've got feedback from, from all around, that 360 feedback. So it's feedback from definitely the technical team's got to have feedback around, you know, how to build out that. You've got to have feedback from the end user or on the customer or the B2B customer that's actually purchasing it to make sure it's meeting all their, their goals as well. But yeah, it's, I think... Uh, the technical founders probably go down and build build out these amazing products they can never commercialize and and that's probably the other the other side of it isn't it that's the other side of coin it is yeah so they'll get stuck in the tech focus on that and just build 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 and then they don't even know how to commercialize operationally how to support the product get customers so i think from my perspective there's, there's two sides of it and in the perfect world you have a mix of it. some great technical people um, some great operations and sales people that can work with the customer engage with them and that are open to do that, you need everyone working in tandem. And it's a moving, it's a machine. So it's, it's like a car without wheels. If you don't have any wheels on it, it's not going to go very far. So you need all the pieces of the puzzle to really get to the final outcome that's going to deliver the outcome for the customer. Yeah. Just before we move on, I just want to take it back to sort of the teams that you were mentioning earlier. So do you currently have your own in-house team or are you using another party to do that at the moment? Yeah, so we've been, up until right, right now, we've been building everything internally and mm. we've just got to a point where I feel our processes and, and the ability for us to scale. So we're trying an offshoring team out at the moment and uh, we're just onboarding them at the moment. So, so far, so good. We, we sort of did a fairly thorough process, looked at around, I think it was around a dozen uh, companies. I ended up in a country that I didn't think I, I would have. You know, so we're actually India. I sort of sort of might have ended up in Eastern Europe or you know somewhere else in, in Asia, but... Yeah, the company that we've we've selected, I won't name them, but I think they've been I think they've been the best that we saw through through those dozen companies. And so far the experience has been what they actually pitched in the in the sales stuff. But I think if we try to put on an offshoring it would be really yeah. the experience we've had. <laughs> if I try to put on an offshoring team, I think say even twelve months ago, we would have failed. And we wouldn't have been set up for it. We wouldn't have been able to support them. We wouldn't have been able to direct them the right way. So we we think we're you know we've we're real, really well prepared now and and so far so good. It's only very early days and and you know we'll we'll work through that over the next few months and see it, see how it goes. Yeah, it's a teething process. Things will come up. You'll understand how to manage the communication and work properly. So when you initially started, you said you'd gone through three different teams that had delivered the wrong product each time. Oh, yeah. I just want to try and ask, how did you approach finding those teams and then how did you mm. move on from one to the other to, and then slightly improve but not much, like not drastically enough to say the product is fixed now just so we can try and help some of the other people going through this? Yeah, so the first, so everything was sort of tied around budget and, and funding and, and trying to find 
you know, people that would do things, and I suppose cost effective, so so we could get something up. So the first team was around that advisory company that uh, we obviously had the really bad experience. I don't think the the other two the, were the resources they brought in to do. Yeah, they they developed they they developed it. We paid them as part of that you know service that they offered up to us. The the second the second sort of experience was was probably a short experience. We worked out pretty quick that it wasn't going to work, and we were running out of money, so it probably wasn't going to work. So we, it was found through our network. We just just started to look around for people that were sort of going to help us out. And then the third the third one actually he he was really good. He he did a great job. He he sort of again told me that whatever we'd done was completely wrong. It's on a wrong platform, and it's not a, a language everyone understands. And but uh, you know they did a lot of work on the early access equipment that we we've got a, a smartphone app that opens a barrier or any anything with an electric lock, a barrier, a roller door, or a, or a pedestrian door. And they did a lot of work around that and actually got that up and running. But we have moved to platforms since we moved away from them. And, you know, we got a, a software developer in-house at that time. We were a bit better funded. And, you know, Kevin, who's still with us, has been amazing, amazing for us. And uh, what he's done with Samurai Forms was actually you know, pretty cool. And, and what he's done, done with the product, it's, it's, a, it's a way better product than what it was, you know, sort of 18 months ago. It's a natural progression that we see you outsource initially because you can't afford a tech team and then you bring it in-house once the funding comes in so then you can try and monitor and have that constant technical knowledge staying in your business. Yeah, I'll just from... sound of it. Were there like contractors or part-time in the middle there or were they three technical teams? Yeah, they were, con- they were I suppose contractors would be the best way to explain it. it. But for me, I'd been burnt so much that I, I wanted to have that control. I wanted to have someone in the team that was working around our agenda and our goals and and was on the same sort of, you know, you know, the same sort of path and page that we all were. And yes, I sort of, and I, I think this is, goes back to some of the my, my learning and some of my experience. I don't think I was, you know, I, I'm, I was very hard to to get information out of my head of what I wanted and get that down into a, you know, some sort of documentation. It was, it wasn't something I was really good at, and uh, that made it really hard. But I'm sure, you know, if I was doing this with you guys and I told you what I told some of those guys back then, you, you'd probably have it. We'd have a similar experience. So I'm not blaming anyone in particular, but it's it was my experience. It would definitely definitely sort of helped uh, us not getting what we needed out of that. But that was brought in house. It was more I needed that sort of control and security and, and felt like everyone was on the same page. I just felt in that world that people have been working against us a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, they don't they're not they're just doing a job for you, depending on what the culture of that company is, is how much interest they're gonna take in it and how much they're gonna push into it as well, above and beyond what you're paying them to do. So I can see that's where a real strength of having your own CTO on board is we can help direct it and guide it and understand what they're talking about. So I can imagine as a non-technical person, a lot of stuff just goes over your head. Like you said, you couldn't understand the concept of agile delivery as yeah. opposed to previous stuff. But if they started driving into technical stuff, it'll just be completely lost. Yeah. If I go into any other industry, I'll just get lost with their terms. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, some of the stuff was a different language, just them trying to explain it to me. And uh, a lot of it I had to... Yeah, you sort of, you know, maybe I should have done a little bit more education around that, that sort of stuff myself. But uh, yeah... That, so it takes a lot of effort as well, though. Yes. But, uh, it's probably You don't, probably don't need to necessarily be technical and savvy to understand how they're developing it, as long as you can communicate with them well enough where they can ask you enough questions to understand what you're after, or you can articulate it in a way that they can then clarify and repeat it back to you the same. If they can, if they can do that, then they've understood it. But it's more around that, I think, rather than you trying to be on top of the technology and understanding how and what and why. I think that probably the, one of the most important roles we have in our team now is the BA. And I'm able then to communicate through to them in sales speak. <laughs> they can convert it into a document that you know, the, the development team can now look at and go, yeah, that works, or no, we we'll need to do this this a little bit differently. But it's now now we're documenting things out. It's not just in someone's head, or we're not whiteboarding, you know, just whiteboarding something. Go and build that. It's now uh, properly documented out. Yeah, it has to be there. Everyone has to have like one source of truth, effectively. Yeah, that's right. And if it's not clear enough, as soon as the assumptions start, the things just go sideways very quickly. We've seen that so many times before in the past, so just from our own team early in early days. Yeah, so I, the attention to detail was probably not my strong suit. So having that BA documented out, and then I'm I'm reviewing and saying, yeah, that's what I want, and then the the development team then grabbing it and saying, yeah, we might need to tweak this, or we might need to do this a little bit differently. But yeah, you, you, we're then getting we're getting a lot better results than what we were when when it was me just saying, "You're right, this is what I want." 
Yeah, yeah, that translation is key. Once it's the translation's right, then it makes everything smooth. So the understanding is clear, their intent is clear, and the outcome is extra clear. Documenting is uh, pivotal. I think yeah, you've landed on something that's really important there because it establishes clarity across all parties. If you don't have a document or a source of truth or a plan in place, it becomes very difficult. And then there's a lot of hearsay and there's a lot of decisions being made probably in the wrong spots. You've got developers making decisions on business outcomes. That's not a good place to be. And if you're not clear on what they're up to, it becomes quite challenging. And getting the right product in the mind of yourself, your customers, and the developers is yeah, not impossible. Yeah, clarity, I think, is key to any project. Everybody needs to be on the same page. So you need someone leading the ship, but you also need people asking enough questions to ensure that they're on the same page. Because I feel like if you don't ask the questions as a developer, consulting team, whatever they might be, just to get to the crux of what the what is really needed, yeah, you're really going a little bit blind. So yeah, we need to clarify and verify all the time. I think it's really important. Yeah, and I think in the early days, doing the due diligence on the, on the team, make sure yeah. that you actually understand that they are going to do what you need them to do and they are the right people to partner up with if, if that's what you're doing. That's the work you've got to do as your founder. You've got to make sure that that team is going to be a good fit for you. They're going to be someone you can trust because then you can throw the trust into it and uh, allow them because you've got to, I think for me, I had to learn what they were telling me. And once you've got that trust up, you can actually come back the other way and 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 open up and, and allow them to take control a bit more and guide you down the right direction because they're the experts in that field. Mm-hmm. Well, let's dig in a bit on that, a team. So what are some of the qualities you believe you need in a team to work with trust you mentioned? Like what are some of the others? Because I think it's an interesting topic just to get it from yourself as to what you believe a team needs to have to deliver quality outcome. I think if I was looking, if I was starting again, I was looking for something similar. I'd be, I'd be looking at history. And I'd be definitely talking to customers of, of uh, the company that I was looking to sort of partner up with around it. And, and that that would probably be the, the main thing. And then making sure that you just don't, you know, you get some sort of introduction from someone in your network that says these guys are really good and, you know, you should partner mm-hmm. up with them. You've just got to do that work yourself and make sure you, you don't leave, you know, too many stones unturned uh, as you start to doing that due diligence. And and I think once that's that's ticked off and you can and you've you can see the past records, you can see the history of, of delivery, I think that's when you can start opening up to the team and, and allow them to guide you down the next steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of network, I think that's probably where most people go. So reaching out to a network, you don't know. But if you don't know anyone, that's when the, the stumbling block gets a bit hard, right? So if you don't know anyone in your network, where do you actually lean to? And that's a lot of challenges that a lot of startup founders find themselves in. They just start hunting online and they, they don't have the questions to ask and they don't think that way. So I think it's a couple of good things that you've raised there that people can basically start a conversation from. Andrew, I think the other part of it is, you know, we, we all have really good networks and big networks and people we trust, but you know, if they haven't done or been in that, that, that experience, either they're not quite sure if they if they haven't had something developed themselves by, by these people, they may only know that they're good people. Um, so whether they can actually do that job. So I think that's probably one area I just relied on. You know, it could have been some of our shareholders. It could have been some of our advisory board members. Mm-hmm. And it's not just development. It's in, in a lot of different areas that we're working in. You know, we, we were picking people to help us you know, do some fundraising last year. And I relied on some, <laughs> some preferences from our, from our network and, and got it completely wrong. So I think it's, it's everything you're doing as a founder as you're coming up. Just, just make sure you do a bit more due diligence and just have someone in your network do a great introduction, make sure you get it from two or three people or make sure you talk to someone that's actually gone through the experience with them. I think that's important because going through the experience is very different, like you said. So yeah, they may know them, but never built anything with them or worked with them for three, six, nine, 10 months, 12 months, or continuously working with them is where you need to be. Like It is a partnership. Bringing on a tech team should be seen as a partnership. If it's seen as a a do a job, move on, that's generally not the right relationship. If that's the thinking of the founder, I'd question that because it is an ongoing piece of work. It's an ongoing experience and evolution. So yeah, it's something that people want to be really thinking about and talking to people like yourself. Who have you worked with in the past? How have you done it? I think that's why we share these stories so people can get a bit of a grip on everyone's little experiences and they might take something from this that helps them along their journey, saves them the... uh, the three companies and they, they get it right maybe first time will be a great blessing from our perspective and we get better ideas better tech coming out and 
what we seem to find is people like yourself are, are the ones that actually can drive some innovative tech because you understand the industry. The, the technical founders that um, try and throw a product into an industry can have a lot of trouble because they, they dive in and they may not understand it from the outside looking in. They have different challenges. It's bringing on different advisors in the industry, bringing on people that are going to help them get to the right outcomes, really working with customers. But from a technical person, that can be quite quite interesting because of different dynamics. So yeah, there is a bit in this, but the technical founder and the non-technical founder all have their own challenges in this. And sharing your stories and journeys is really important to us. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think you know, what, what we're sort of seeing now is you know, in our industry, you know, sort of in our, we sort of fit in that parking mobility industry. Just to give you an idea of what Ubi Park has done, we've digitized the entire parking transaction. So we call it SNAP, so search, navigate, access and pay directly from, from the phone. And obviously, as I said before, the, the smarts in the technology is the ability to open the barrier from the app. But there's a lot of automation through there, and, and that's a lot of what we've actually been doing is we've been selling back into an industry that's got a lot of manual and paper-based archaic processes. We've, we just, we've sold a lot of automation through our platform to, that solves a lot of those problems. But we see it all the time. We see a uni student jump out of uni, had a bad parking experience yeah, at uni, and decides they want to create an app for it. And it's great. I'm happy to speak to all of those. And I've actually got one person that did that and is working with us at the moment. Because I said, just come and have a look at the industry. Come and work for us because I really liked her and she's actually still with us. She's been with us now um, about 18 months. And she had the idea that parking was a really bad experience at at uni and she had some really good ideas around how to fix it. And when I pointed out that there was probably around 30 of these solutions in the market and none of them had been able to commercialise. But I said to her, come and and work in if you still want to go down that track and and, and go ahead of it. It's a great idea. Just come and work for us as a part-time have a look at the industry and, and think of what, about where the next steps might be after that. And well, she's, she's still with us after 18 months. So I'm hoping she stays with us too. She might go and do something, but it won't be the parking solution. But, but you see, you know, we've, and we yeah, come up against, we come up against, you know, some of our competitors have come from a non-industry uh, background and, you know, and there's obviously good thinking from those sort of people around it, but there's a lot of, complexity through the industry that you've got to understand as well, why they're doing things certain ways to make sure you can commercialize your idea. Yeah, it is. And I think that's a good advice for anyone out there that wants to jump into a new industry. Yeah, go work in it first, not just plunk an idea because you've got a problem. It can work. Like it's been done before where people have an issue and they solve it with, and, and they do it in their own accord. And there's plenty of success stories like that, but there's a, there's more failures than success stories in that space. That's yeah, when you're a sure. customer unhappy with the process, it's very difficult. Yeah, it is. You get you ideas all the time, but it's going to be hard to do anything with them. I can attest to that. Yeah, we see, I'm, I'm happy to chat to these people in our industry. I, yeah. I, I actually love it. Uh-huh. And but we see people and we've seen companies that have created ideas, you know, say, say an idea that they think Wilson and Secure being our two largest operators here are just going to jump on and, and take on. But, they're sort of focused on their own things and they do things in a, in a way that may seem a little bit odd to people outside the industry, but it's, it's something that they need to do to make what they're doing work and, and to make money for their business. And so if you don't, you don't understand some of those things, you've got to check that out before you jump in anyway. You've got to check out that you know, some, some of these customers validate the, the idea that, a, that some of these key customers are actually going to you know, want that. And that's probably been the key in, in our industry where, the companies that have jumped in, not knowing that, have, have sort of ever had to pivot, and some of them have pivoted and survived, and, and others have disappeared. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the important point. Can you pivot and survive? Because the likelihood of you getting it right first time around is, yeah, not that high, really, because there are there are pivots that are required. There is change in thinking. So yeah, that, then the tighter you keep your initial developments and thinking, the better it is. Because when you, I imagine when you went and spent three hundred thousand dollars on building something, uh, thinking back to that raising the next amount of money or how you did the next part would have been more challenging. How did you approach that? I would have asked that question. Yeah, on my knees, I think. It was very, it was very challenging. I, I mean, I did the, the family friends round early. We raised around $450,000 early from, from two, two investors. They're with me. They still talk to me, but we, got, we, we did waste their money. Yeah, we did waste their money, their original money that they put in. You know, we, we just got it wrong. And then when you're sort of going to that next level, we we we, we raised some money in in 2017. We raised half a million, and from some from high net, 
individuals and that, that was a tougher race for us because you we sort of didn't have the runs on the board and we made mistakes and, and we got it wrong we still we still believed in the idea and 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 we were starting to get some traction and and it was we were lucky though i think you know in hindsight we we got uh, the right the right investor at the right time and he convinced a couple of his mates to to join us and and they've been great yeah you know, they're mm-hmm. you know they're on our one of them's on our advisory board and they've been really supportive through that time they've put in a second time and we've been really lucky and that's and that help from from those guys and that belief in i suppose me as a founder and the idea it was probably me and and then will obviously being our cto were the two main people back then when we raised that money that were the two two reasons that was you know people people invest in the team and that's what i would say to anyone that's that's looking to do something now it's it's the idea is obviously important and commercialization and and making sure there's a business out of it, but they're going they're going to invest in you, and and that's probably the main thing they're looking at someone that uh, is going to be successful and and get them a return for their investment. Yeah, they want to make sure you can drive and run with it and do what you say you're going to do, mm-hmm. not get the money and pay yourself two hundred grand a year as a salary. Yeah, yeah I, correct. <laughs> I think at that stage investors don't want to hear that you know everything and you're able to do everything, and you just need the money. They actually. I think those investors wanted to help me go on the journey as well. And if you open yourself up um, and maybe you, uh, you know, ask for help a little bit around there and tell them that you, you know, these are the areas you struggle and, and you're weak with, I think that, that actually opens up to a, a conversation where they can trust and, and help you. You, know, they, they, you tell them what you actually need and they can, they can help you, you know, whether it's them or inside their network, sort of you know, plug some of the weaknesses you may have. Uh, and speaking to investors in our journey, they want to help because they are putting their money on the line, but they also want to open their network and be involved in some capacity. The ones that are more hands-on, some just throw money at 20, 30 projects and hope for the best. But yeah, when you're looking for an investor, I think you want someone that's going to really add value. It's not just about money. Investment can come in many forms. It's resources, it's network, it's opening up different opportunities, taking it overseas, whatever it might be. Investors can come in different forms, and I think people, um, or advisors for that matter, people look at investment as a dollar figure, but a dollar figure plus some some knowledge, or even just the knowledge as an advisor, can be a significant investment in the business because it can save you a lot of time, money, and effort when you look at networks and connections. Mm, Correct. So there's plenty in that. We're in the middle of uh, a funding round now, so we got to profitability in March, and and we've sustained that through the, the pandemic. And, How long uh, did but, that take? Just asking that question. Yeah, so we kicked off. I left uh, my old job in. I think first day was was September one, twenty fourteen, mm-hmm. away from not yeah, having a, a salary. And the idea and the company got uh, formed a little bit earlier, but that was when we sort of really committed to it. So yeah, we burnt through a lot of money, obviously early with the mistakes we made, and then we tried to raise some money last year, and we we weren't really good at it. That's probably what I would say, but. We started to sell out of it. We we started to get real traction in the product and, and we're able to sell out of it. So we did a small safe note round at the end of the year to just get us through that Christmas period from a cash flow point of view. And then we hit profitability in, in March. And, and that's been a, a completely different uh, feeling from as a founder and not having to worry about money every two or three months or where the next yeah. sort of money coming in is, is easy. And then what's happened off the back of, well, COVID's, COVID-19's obviously been, uh, really good for for our technology. Um, it's it's there's been a lot of mindset changes in the property industry, which is where we're really focused at the moment, and that's that's opened up a lot of opportunities. We've got a, a zero contact parking product uh, that's windows up, so it's completely COVID safe. So that's had a a fair bit of demand, and then we've also got a what we call agile mm-hmm. parking, which allows us to you know tenants and their staff to share parking spaces automatically. So as they return to work in two days a week or three days a week and they don't need the space five days a week. We've got the ability to throw that back into a pool that another staff member can use it or it can go back into a marketplace that can be can be sold for, for someone else in the public to, to pay for it. So they're, they're sort of fitted into the... That's a, that's a good feature, yeah, because... Yeah, when yeah, you're walking been... to a, or driving to a, a parking spot, you, you see all the uh, reserve Six signs and no cars. <laughs> it's cars. quite quite a good feature, actually. Yeah, from all parties, I would imagine. Yeah, we've yeah. So we were thinking about remote working prior to COVID, mm-hmm. and as a trend that mm-hmm. we wanted to be on, um, we we thought that that would open up and be 
you know, a trend that people wouldn't work in the in the office every day. And we were starting to see that. You know, we were seeing you know, large corporate companies and we were starting to see the space that was being wasted in their car parks, in the office car parks. You know, so we had a large, I won't name these, these guys either. There's a large corporate uh, that we're working with. They were spending $13 million a year on staff monthly parking and $8 million was tied up in their lease. Oh, wow. And that was, you know, in the in the, the places of uh, they worked that they had uh, lease agreements for the office space and they had parking that went with it. So that was tight, tight in there. It was stuff that we couldn't really impact. But then they were spending $5 million on what we called overflow park. But when you did the numbers, they were utilising, there's about 40% of their spaces going underutilised every day. So by utilising our solution and being able to manage that space, we were able to save you know, $2 million off that $5 million bill. They've now deleted the whole $5 million bill because they don't need it from COVID and they're just sharing the spaces in their office as, as people come back to work. So it's just utilising that space better and it's just it's just automating it. So yeah, the CEO is going on a week's holiday and he can he or she can throw the, the, the that space back into the pool and or and, and and either we can group it. So it can be just for an executive team or it can be for the entire staff pool or it could be that they want to make some revenue and and, and charge it out to, to the public or some of some the tenants in the building. When you started out on this journey, was that a, a concept that you were looking to solve or is that something you found across the journey? Yeah, no, I think that's probably something that we were, we were definitely looking at things like that. So we, our sort of real focus was just how can we improve the parking experience? It was really okay. You line up, you know, you take a ticket. Sometimes the ticket machine works. Sometimes they, it sucks in your credit card. And we just thought the experience of getting in and out of a car park and paying for it was was really you know, not great. Most people you speak to have got a bad experience in a in a parking location. And you have to be careful when you work for someone like a Wilson or Secure, especially in New Zealand. Or you know, I was told not to even tell people that's where I worked when I went to to uh, parties or barbecues because they they they'd all have bad experience with parking. So we wanted to improve that experience. We wanted to digitise it and bring it in. So that was definitely a, a focus of what we're doing. We also wanted to, there's a lot of different technologies. You know, a cancel, for instance, they'll use seven or eight different technologies. And they'll go to one supplier and try to buy all seven technologies from the one supplier. And we, we thought the smarter way to do that was to go to get best of breed for each of those technologies. It might be three or four suppliers. And then sort of integrate into one solution that allowed us to yeah, have a platform that would plug all those technologies and integrate in. So we, we originally wanted to sell that into cancels early days, and we just struggled to get the cancels to get the concept and the red tape that you go through in local government to actually get a sale across the line. So we sort of pivoted into that commercial parking space and solving problems for the tenant or the, the property owner and then their tenants and their users. So and that could be a hospital and it could be the, the, you know, the end users, the staff, or it could be the visitor. Or it could be a university where it's the students and, and contractors and visitors. Airports are obviously a big parking, you know, com- commercial parking operation. So, you know, solutions we do down at Hobart is completely online booking. We do a taxi management solution. We do a solution for mm-hmm. their pickup area for buses and commercial vehicles dropping you know, people off and picking people up. So it was around trying to find, you know, and a lot of it's been automation, as I said earlier. So it's just about taking that manual process and if you look at how you would buy monthly parking that's a really manual process so you in in the old way it was around you know you'd find a location you'd ring the operator or email them you'd get a price you'd negotiate that price out then you get into the contract and you probably want terms and conditions changed or altered so there'd be a, a discussion around that and then once you actually agreed to it you both signed it and it was scanned and everyone had a copy you needed then to be put into an accounting system and you needed a pass card to be created in the parking system. So there were two systems and they weren't talking to each other. And then the pass card system, but once the pass card's created, it's got to, you've got to get it to someone before they can start using it. So it would take days to get someone set up as a monthly parker. So now we, you apply for it online, you, know, you fill out a form, you agree to the rates, you tick the terms and conditions, that's your contract. You get approved or declined. Once you're approved, though, all you need to do is download the app and you start. And we then connected the yeah, access okay. device Much with the plane. It's device. more seamless, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good example. Yeah. There's heaps, there's heaps yeah, of those in parking. Yeah. No, yeah. Boston, quick question. What drives you as a founder? So what's important to you as a founder? What gets you up in the morning? What keeps you going? Because you've been obviously in this business for 
what is it, six years, give or take, and just recently got to profitability. What drives you to keep pushing and driving and, and soldiering on within the business? Yeah, I think the, the early days, I think even in my career in, in the corporate world, was I love solving solutions, you know, solving problems for, for people, coming up with solutions that, you know, that actually works and, and, and people get a benefit out of. So that was sort of driving, you know, what I was doing with selling parking technology and then what obviously drove me into the business to start with. I think since then, I don't know if I could go back, to be quite honest. I think the culture... I think, yeah, working with great people, not having to worry about too much around the office politics and 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 that type of stuff and the red tape that goes along with a large a large corporate is probably driving it. And then I, I feel like I've got a great opportunity here. Um, you know, the business could have gone a, a couple of different ways a couple of times, but it's it's now starting to kick off. And you know, I've got an opportunity to say you know, to to change the way you know we we my family and and I live, uh, you know, and we think we've got a great opportunity and this is yeah, you know, the one that I think I've got the most value in because of my experience in the industry um, and now the team we've got around us. So that's been the main driver for me. That and, and it's really exciting at the moment because what COVID did for us was just change the way people were thinking about our tech. We were, we were trying to educate a market and now the market's gone. Well, that's a necessity mm-hmm. for me now. So, so it's been a completely different mindset change for us. I imagine it makes a big difference when you're having a conversation when the market needs it and drives it in. I think having the chat to a lot of technology businesses, COVID has been a positive to a number of these businesses because we are everyone is looking for technology to solve a lot of problems right now and more open to try things. That's what we've seen. There's been more openness to actually give something a go rather than let's wait 12, 18 months and make a decision on this. So dealing with corporates like you might be can take time. But if you've got use cases that can save $2 million off the back of $5 million expense, that's significant use case, one would imagine. So I think it's just starting to open up a lot of those conversations. It's changed everyone's mindset of what technology can do it for us. And some, and that is probably seen as a necessity now for you. If you can drive through, not touch anything, no buttons, no anything, uh, yeah, you can definitely see the value there. Yeah, not having to educate each person one by one, have it yes. all at once in mass, it's a mm. huge thing to happen. Correct. Yeah. Very rare for it to happen again too. But Yeah, correct. <laughs> very rare. Yeah. Yeah, I don't wish a pandemic ever again, no. don't get me wrong. I've been locked down in, in you know, in Melbourne since March and I don't wish that on anyone ever again. I think the other thing for us is, you know, so that's that's been our real focus now, but our vision is we don't think parking single parking applications survive going forward. Or we think they die and we think the, the parking transaction is a service that needs to fit inside a bigger ecosystem. So there's three main ecosystems that we're looking at at the moment. So the mobility as a service or or public transport sort of world, where we can plug parking into that world. And we've done that with uh, Placey and car sales that have just announced their their new mobility as a service application and their sort of startup that they've sort of built inside car sales. Uh, We've also done it with Arrivo and the RACV that have sort of gone down that track as well. But we sort of see that as, you know, instead of doing parking as a single transaction, it's then done as part of your your total transport journey. So you do your A to B, your your trip journey planning. And if driving is part of that, whether it's a car share or or it's driving to the station, for instance, you know, parking has a part to play and it actually can get the mobility of service company are trying to reduce congestion. And we've got a, a similar sort of goal. If we can actually get the driver to look at all the other modes of transport and, and maybe jumping on the trains quicker and, and more efficient for it to get them to their meeting on time, and that means they don't drive, that's that's part of you know, our sort of vision. It's it's what's the best outcome for getting people around our city, but also you know what's best for the person that's actually making those decisions. And, and parking hasn't traditionally sat inside that mobility space. But we're starting to see, you know, education, especially where there's been a push at the moment away from public transport. And we're sort of saying to people, why don't you get a relationship with the driver now? So when they start to feel comfortable again, you can get them back onto the more sustainable transport. The other two areas is the connected car space with with the car manufacturers and getting mm-hmm. getting it in there. So they, they're struggling a little bit with engagement around their connected car platforms and services to go into them. And parking's a really good fit mm-hmm. to go in there. It provides a better better option for them, better experience, better safety. And then the other one that we're really focused on is this smart property apps that are starting to get rolled out across our you know, commercial and residential properties. Again, parking should be just done as, as, as a service as part of that, that bigger ecosystem. 
So that's that's where our vision is, and that's where the business is, is moving to. It's an integration business. It's a, a white labeling. Yeah, you, know, you won't see a lot of movie park stuff out there. It's for hidden in between the bigger ecosystems. Providing the platform and the service for those verticals, effectively. Mm-hmm. I'm sure yeah. Yeah, being agile allows you to then jump on any of those opportunities as they happen, because you don't know where one of them is going to come from first, or depending on who you're talking to or what your sales channel you're doing and what the cycle is like. Yeah, I think the, the big focus for us and how we got the property bill is just focus on solving for the property and getting the technology into the property. And that opens up those other opportunities. But but getting Porsche and Placey and Arivo on our, you know, as, a, as customers has actually helped us get the, the property. And the property owner sees the value out of being able to track those users into their, you know, get their car park locations. And it's, I think it's having a bigger vision. And that's something that you're talking about here. It's not just about parking. It's it's a vision that's solving bigger problems. And then how do you evolve to that? And selling that story in that journey because, and you don't have all the answers right now either, right? So getting to what the, those outcomes might be is really about what the bigger vision is. So the next uh, maybe three to five years is looking quite interesting for you in terms of Ubi Park, in terms of where it's all going. And yeah, it sounds like a, a nice little path that you're definitely on right now. Yeah, I think that's part of your learning, right? Is that mm. the focus? I mean, we we were you know following you know sales and money around all the place, and before Andrew was that uh, you can sort of spread yourself too wide, and you can sort of take your product off on areas that uh, probably aren't getting to your end goal. And I think that's that's what you know the founders out there that are looking to do that now, getting getting it really clear around what your end goal is, and then working out what those steps are to get there is. Is really important, and I think we've done a lot of work on that the last the last twelve months, and we we refresh it all the time now. So we're actually that's key you know, to what we're actually in. And the trick now is we're scaling, and it's getting quick, and we're going through some growing pains. But but you know the the key is to make sure everyone in the team knows what everyone's doing and what everyone's role is, and and then we're all on the same vision and we're all down down the same path. And and that's that's the sort of a lot of work that we've done lately. So this will allow us to scale real quickly. That's better problems to have than it was at the start, right? So growing pains <laughs> is a good problem. <laughs> yeah, on, yes, definitely. Before we probably wrap up, for any other startups that are going through or starting out at the moment, what sort of like what are three tips that you could share from your experience that would help someone try and avoid some of those mistakes that you made? Yeah, due diligence, I think, is the, the key for me. So just making sure you tick off, talk to people. Um, people out there want to help you. Make sure you get it from a cross section. Don't just get it from your friends or your family. And that's around your product. That's around people you partner up with. That's around your ideas. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different paths that to, to, to succeed in this. And if you can get different ideas from different people, then work out what's best for you. I think that's that's the thing. But and then once you get good people around you because you've done that work, I think you can then open up and allow them to guide you down their expertise, whether it's technology with you know likes of you guys or you know, commercial or, or finance or someone that's setting it up or it's legal. That that was one area that we got burned on a lot early was, was a lot of money in legal. And now we've got a partner that's sort of real focused around startups. I will give them a plug that we use Luna for that type of stuff. And they, you know, we were getting stuff done by bigger legal corporations and and put in front of the customer, the customer wouldn't sign it because it was they were protecting us too much. Whereas Luna's actually allowed us to be commercial, but be protected at the same time and not cost me an arm and a leg for something I couldn't use. So so things like that, you've just got to be, yeah, go through and everyone will have different you know, paths the way through it. But the big thing for me would be due diligence, be open to ideas, learn from people, take take in the feedback. And you don't, you know, not every piece of feedback is going to be useful to you, but just definitely take it in, listen and, and utilise uh, people that have done it before to work out um, how you might be able to, you know, miss some of the, the steps that, uh, you know, especially what I've, I've done. I'm completely different now um, to, to what I would have been if I'd started again now. I'd be completely doing it, you know, super different to what I did early. They're probably the, the main things. And I think, you know, once you've got that, uh, and then, yeah, I think, you know, make sure you, you so focus on that goal. Make sure you can commercialise it, uh, but make sure you're focused on that goal. And it is something that people want. Uh, so make sure you get that tested by, my customers, and again, not your family, not your friends who will tell you that, yeah, it's a really cool idea. Make sure you go out and get people that, you know, potential customers or users of the solution to tell you whether they would use it or not. I think that's the key. Yeah. Thanks, Mostyn. That was, um, yeah, great insight there and plenty for people to think about. In terms of uh, if anyone wants to find out about Ubi Park or get in contact with you, how might they reach you? 
Yeahubipark.com. You can jump on there. You can contact us through there. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, so definitely look me up, Austin Howe, on, on LinkedIn. Yeah, and reach out. I'll be happy to talk to anyone about it, about anything we've talked about today or, or if there's anyone out there that's looking, you know, to take some steps in, you know, that's prior to me. Well, we're still, I think we're only, you know, early, early stages in our journey still, you know, so but we have we have learned a lot over the last sort of, you know, three or four years, especially. We've just gone through the Reach Accelerator program. So, you know, from a prop tech uh, point of view, and that's sort of really helped us as well. It's opened up a lot of doors. And we did a few of the accelerator programs. We did one with plug and play with a mobility piece in Japan. So some of those sort of programs too can definitely help. You got to make sure you go into them with the right you know, idea and, and goals out of it. They're not to just making your business grow. You've got to actually work at it and learn from it and then utilize it yourself. You've still got to do everything yourself, but they are they are helpful in guiding you down the right direction and, and putting you in front of good people that can help you. So, so yeah, I definitely look at those sort of things as well to fast track your business. Perfect, Moss. And they're great advice from uh, along the, the podcast. I think, yeah, definitely one uh, we'll be sharing out on LinkedIn probably come December <laughs> given time-wise, but yeah, we'll um, share it out pre-Christmas because I think there's a lot of content in this and people can learn from. And your experience has, yeah, been not different than many others. And I think it is a journey. And I think that's a key word that I think we all have to focus on. It is a journey. It's a learning experience. And it's evolution of yourself as a founder. Your team will grow and change and think differently if you're willing to commit to doing that as well. So I think that's really important. Really appreciate your time. If you like the episode, please like and subscribe. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers.